Well, welcome to The Journey. Um, my name is Kevin Polkey, and I am the host of The Journey. And today we have a special guest returning to us, uh, Brian Montabano. And uh, he was one of our guests uh, with his his own unique story of, of how his life has gone and what he's now done with his life. Um, Brian was on the show um, back in the beginning uh, of the pandemic, back in 2020. Um, and since then, uh, his, his story, his journey has taken a couple twists and turns. And uh, I know we're going to get into that in a, in a moment. But uh, Brian, welcome, welcome back to the journey. Yeah, no, thanks for having me again. Looking forward to, to chatting. It's been a, been a few years, so it'll be good to catch up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, well, one of the things that I know have happened, uh, you moved from Chicago down to down to Tennessee, where you're at. And as we were just talking a moment ago, um, weather is relative, and it sounds like it's pretty, pretty, pretty cold down there com- comparatively to what you guys are used to. Uh, so, and I know that uh, they they're sometimes not always uh, well prepared for uh, <laughs> for what we may in Wisconsin and Illinois be prepared for. Yeah, it was uh, it was interesting. I got up early and shoveled the driveway just to kind of get ahead of it, and um, kind of kind of uniquely missed that quiet that I used to have when I lived in Chicago. It was the only quiet time I had between five and six a.m. shoveling the drive. But yeah, we're not equipped down here for the uh, for the snowstorms or the cold weather. So it'll be an interesting couple of days. Sure, sure. So, well, Brian, why don't you just for the ones and for our, our listeners now to just kind of bring us up to speed of. Uh, who who you are, what what you you know, who you are, where you came from, some of the family dynamics growing up, just kind of kind of color a little bit, and then we'll we'll jump into your your backstory, and then where where you've been at the last couple of years. Yeah, sure thing. So I grew up in uh, Northern Illinois. I grew up in Rockford. Uh, I came from a middle cat class family. Mom, dad, and younger brother. Um, yeah, I, I went to high school, kind of progressed in my career. I work in supply chain and logistics now. Um, so I've been able to kind of go to college, advance my career. Um, early on, at the age of nine, I had a, uh, a bout of something called cardiomyopathy, which is an enlargement of the heart muscle. And that led to uh, heart transplant number one. And uh, that transplant lasted 20 years. And then in uh 2011, 2011, I needed a second transplant. So at 29, I ended up having second heart transplant. I had some few complications after that where it was a little, was a little rocky for a few months. But then, uh, you know, back at it, met my wife. And now we have two kids and two dogs and kind of living the, uh, living the dream right now. So it's, so things have been going relatively stable since the, uh, since the, uh, since the surgery. So sure. So um, Brian, your, your wife's, uh, your wife's first name is, yeah, my was Heather. Heather, okay, and yeah. and Heather had you and Heather been together for for how long? You how old were you when you and Heather met? I was either twenty nine or thirty, so we've been together for about uh, 12, 13 years, and been married okay. will be ten years this year. So okay, and you have two children, right? Two kids. We have a six year old and a three year old. So. Okay, okay, nice. All right, that's uh, they they will definitely keep you uh, keep keep you moving, especially at those ages. They they're yeah. They're moving. <laughs> they are. They're busy all the time. They're up. Our youngest is usually up before all of us at like 545, 530 in the morning, ready to roll. And yeah, they keep us on our toes all day. It's it's good, though. It kind of keeps us young and it's sure. great to uh, it's great to have them around. So nice. OK, um, so so with that, when you were talking about uh, 
you were nine years old and your your life had a had a twist to it that most nine-year-olds and most families of nine-year-olds don't don't experience and that was uh uh you know having this major surgery of having a heart transplant what from from looking back on that what what do you remember about that experience um how did it how did it play out for your family how did it play out for you and i know you're nine so it's hard for us to see anything except through a nine-year-old's eyes yeah. so yeah i think the the biggest thing now especially having kids um and our oldest isn't quite that age yet but i think you know I was naive to the fact of what was going on. I knew I was sick. I knew how sick I was because I was gravely, gravely ill. Um, but it, it also kind of made me have to grow up really fast. And I think um, I've done a lot of charity work through Make-A-Wish Foundation and other things. And you see a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of chronic and sick uh, children and families dealing with it. But I think the one thing that it does for the patient, regardless of the age, but especially when you're younger, become an adult like immediately. You know, I you're getting you're getting tasked with serious questions. You might not understand it. For me, I was able to come on the other side and, you know, fortunate enough to get the life-saving transplant. But coming with that, you have to take medicine, you know, at least twice a day, multiple times a day. You're managing your pill schedule. You got to stay on those medications for the rest of your life. So there's a lot of, like, maturity that has to happen at a young age. And, you know, it puts stress on your family because they got to worry about you now. Are you going to get sick because you're immunocompromised? You know, what do you do? Do you go back to school? Do you Can you live a quote unquote normal life? Because my first transplant was in 1990. There wasn't a lot of research on it. I was the 219th heart transplant at Loyola in Chicago. So even at that time, that was a, that was a small number of all of Chicago in that hospital. So and, and advancements have come, you know, myriads and myriads, you know, ahead from where we were, you know, 30 some odd years ago. And I actually just um, had my 13 year anniversary of my second transplant. I think it was a couple of days ago. So it's, and I haven't had a single issue with the second heart, but it's just, you know, I've had, you know, my life's been very blessed, but there is a lot of mat maturity that comes with that. And a lot of decision makings that a lot of people just don't see and don't realize that, you know, you have to, you have to kind of grow up because you're dealing with life and death kind of from there until the rest of your life. So. So with that, obviously it wasn't just at nine years old having having the heart transplant and that surgery. It, it was about your life being impacted by being sick yeah. prior to that, right? And and yeah. so when when do you, from the best you recall, when do you when do when did you start having symptoms that were really impacting you from being able to maybe do the same things that other 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 kids were doing your age. Yeah, it happened really fast. And I really, I actually remember it very vividly. I played a lot of sports growing up and it was around May or June of that year. I hit a ball into, into left field and ran down to first base and didn't make it to, didn't make it to base. And the coach kind of told me, y'all was yelling like an old, I was running like an old lady and couldn't make it to the base and just kind of really getting into me, even being a young age for not making it there. And I kind of came home and told my parents, I was like, I was having a really hard time catching my breath and uh, told my parents my heart was beating fast one day and just couldn't really understand why. And that was in June of that year. And then my transplant happened in October. So I progressed wow. rapidly from being a kid who never really got sick. I, I'm not really prone to colds. I don't really catch, never had the flu, never had the strep, even to this day. Rarely got sick as a kid, but I, that hit me hard. And then in a span of, you know, three to four or five months, 
I wouldn't have got the transplant on the day I got it, I don't think I would have been there the next day to live because I was so chronically ill from that period. So it happened in a short window, but it progressed extremely fast from uh, from the chronic illness standpoint. Gotcha. Okay. And, and so with that, as you started again, thinking back to that first, because the reason, the reason why I'm asking about that is because I know uh, having been a counselor for all these years, right. Knowing, you know, looking back on my own, on my own life, when, what we do, you know, when we look at regarding therapy or, you know, coaching or whatever we're doing, I, those, those things that happened during those impressionable years, you know, have, a, have sometimes an impact on us where we make conclusions about how life is or how life mm-hmm. You know, you know, could be or supposed to be. I mean, we, you know, joke about not joke, but you know, point out that if if someone was grew up as being really thin, you know, skinny and and could eat anything and do anything, you know, through grade school, middle school, even high school, you know, in their mind, they're always skinny, so they're going to be the person at the beach. You know, you know, they, they, it doesn't matter what they, what, whatever they weigh in their mind, they still be, oh yeah, maybe I, I put on a couple pounds. The other way around happens is that if someone always grew up and perceived that they were overweight, no matter how lean they get, no matter how much mm-hmm. body fat they lose as an adult, their impression is that they um, are always that, that kid that was overweight. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I, and not that you know weight determines value or anything like that. I'm my point of saying this is more about an impression that we take and then we kind of lock it into our psyche and then we find things to confirm that along along our journey, right? Mm-hmm. And and so when you know for you in that wind, short window of time mm-hmm. of, of June of of your of your ninth grade year, and of course, you know, I mean that coach probably was some dad who was just you know helping out with you know a little mm-hmm. league, a little bit yeah, about baseball yeah. maybe yeah you know didn't realize that his motivational technique of <laughs> shaming you yeah. <laughs> into running faster may not necessarily work <laughs> in this particular case um especially because you had a, a, a something that had nothing to do with motivation mm-hmm. uh, but again these are all things that we could you know, some people there, it just bounces off them, just slides mm-hmm. right off them. Right. Others, yeah. it's just like, and, and and sticks with us. When when you think back of that now as a 40 year old, looking back on that nine year old boy, what, what, what do you know today that he may not have known? Um, I think that's, good question i think the biggest thing that i've learned out the course of my life dealing with everything that i've dealt with is a couple things one tomorrow's not promised to anybody so try to live your life you know the best that you can each day and two it really doesn't matter what anybody else says thinks or feels you got to do kind of what's best for you and you know that that comment i don't i don't know why it sticks with me i mean that was so long ago um but it kind of sticks with me and it kind of sticks to me as like the point of my health journey. Cause that was the first time I felt like, wow, I couldn't really do something. 
Um, and I think that's my, maybe why the comment stands out. And then I remember talking to my parents about it. Then I remember kind of going through some of the, some of the ins and out prior to the surgery, but that comment really, really stuck with me. But at the end of the day, um, it's the actions that I think the individual, you as an individual take to kind of get you through that. And that's been kind of my mentality. You know, I've faced challenges. I've been told multiple times I'm not going to make it. I've been told I'm not going to be able to go back to work. I've been told, you know, you got three to six months to live. And yet, you know, I'm 40, I think I'm 42 now. Um, and I'm, and I'm still here kind of forging through each day. And I think my parents did a really good job early on, you know, after I got home, after my surgery, kind of let me be a kid and kind of let me do the things that I needed to do to kind of still play and grow up. And I've kind of taken that mentality into everything I've gone to. I take my transplant as a gift and I want to honor my donors' families by living my life, not retreating and staying inside and being overly cautious. Everybody's got to be cautious. I wash my hands probably more than anybody in the world, but, um, but, you know, you still want to honor, I think the best way you can honor the donor family is by living your life to the fullest, just like they would want their loved ones to have, have done. It. And that's what I've tried to do. I've tried to take that comment and those, what I took out of the, yeah, I couldn't do something now, but now that I can, I want to maximize kind of my output. And that's what I strive to do every day, whether it be in a family man, whether it be in through work I try to give 110% each day. Um, and I, and I try to just live my life how I want to live it and let all the outside noise be there and, you know, just be confident in my abilities and before. Well, I think, you know, I, I think a couple great points, right, is that, you you know, I think when we come to a place and we reconcile, yes, that's a there's going to be a bookmark that happens, right? That it's, it's yeah. bookmarked there because of that moment in time that that is bookmarked with that comment that then allowed you to have it stand out enough to share with your parents right mm -hmm. and and so yes it was the beginning of of that part of the journey but it was also it was critical and that that led to you getting the transplant letting you then for 20 years you know being able to utilize that donor's heart and 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 have life right mm -hmm. and so i think that is that again that's that idea that um we reconcile ourselves to things so we don't have to carry that energy of negativity or fear or whatever it is saying that yes something that could be perceived as negative also can be utilized for um, life giving and and yes. so so you're 20 you're in your late 20s obviously something starts to show that things aren't going well right mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about that story because I, someone who doesn't know a ton other than from yourself and our times when we've met and mm -hmm. maybe our audience doesn't know a lot about you know um someone who has a transplant at such a young age um mm -hmm. is, this, is this a common thing that that someone 20 years later would have to have another transplant yeah i think uh i think like the statistics out there is like you got to keep five to five year mark so if you get past five years you're usually pretty good for a while i think the uh longevity really depends on various things the age of the donor the age of the recipient the match your antibody level um how many times you have or go through rejection so your body attacking your heart 
what happened with me in the first one, my first transplant was, you know, five years after transplant, I had five-year range. I had very severe rejection. So was in the hospital, almost didn't make it, went through something called plasmapheresis, which wasn't as common back in like 95, but it kind of circulated out my antibodies, kind of got them back in, and then it kind of re- reversed the transplant. I was told that day I would need another transplant, and then three days later, after they did the uh, plasmapheresis, I was back, you know, I was back at school that next year, and the heart lasted another 15 years. But in between there, the rejection started to cause blockages, and then the blockages led to I had a heart attack and then the heart attack led to stents and then angioplasty and stuff like that. And I did that for, you know, five years from year 15 to year 20, trying to prolong that heart because transplant surgery is difficult to go through. You know, you don't really want to have to have a major surgery if you don't have to. So I, I wanted to prolong that heart as long as I could. So um, my late, to my mid twenties until I was 29, I was able to do that. And then, you know, I think it was around October of, 2010 was kind of the last time that they were they're like hey you're blocked all your arteries are blocked we can't really do anything else you're going to need to do another transplant and i was able to get a hold of uh university of chicago and dr juman andam's a world-renowned transplant surgeon and he's the one who actually ended up doing my second transplant got a hold of him he called me the wednesday before thanksgiving flew up with my and talked talked with him with my parents and Got it done in, in January of that following year. So um, my second transplant, and you know, it's unfortunate that I had that rejection. It's the only rejection I've had with any transplant whatsoever. It just happened to be a major one. Um, but I think, you know, I've also learned from that because it's like, it can happen. I don't worry that it does happen, but it's, I know that it can happen. And then, you know, I think going through kind of the life or death issues that I had, you know, having the heart attack, uh, dealing with dealing with blockage. I'm mean, like, I would go in for angiograms and get stents put in on a Thursday, fly back to Atlanta and go to work on a Monday. It was just kind of like normal. I didn't really let it kind of deter me. So I just kind of had the mentality. This was my life. I got to kind of power through, you know, work was kind of a safety net for me because it gave me something to focus on. So I threw myself into work. I hadn't met my, my now wife at the time. So it's all I really had was to just kind of throw myself into my, into my work. And that I think that kind of gave me an outlet to, to focus my attention on, but I've never been one to really worry about my, my mortality or anything like that. I just don't, I never focus on my health. I just, if something pops up, deal with it and then move on to the next day and, and keep going forward. And I think that's something that helps me personally, that I don't have a lot of health anxiety or I don't have any health anxiety. And it kind of helps me kind of navigate through life because everything's chaotic in my health with my health, but actually I'm relatively healthy now. Um, still bumps that you deal with. But I think if I focus on that every day, it would probably overconsume my life. And I try to focus on the things that are around me, my wife, my kids, my job, et cetera. So. Sure. Gotcha. Well, I, and that aspect too, right. That, that, you know, for people, for the audience to just know that, you know, that, you know, that window of time, that five years, and then, you know, and then the, the in your particular case, the complications that you had had with your body and that particular heart, sounds like it hasn't been the story with the second heart. Um, and and so it, it it doesn't always happen. It can happen. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. again, you, and you said this earlier about, you know, we can't always 
we have limited amount of control over the things that are happening that happen to us, right? I mean, mm -hmm. granted, if it's a if it's an icy, if there's ice out on the road, right, and and you're still thinking you should drive at the same speed that you do when there's not ice in the road, you have some influence over that control, right? Mm -hmm. But we don't have influence if there's going to be ice on the road. We don't have influence of the temperature. You know, we just have influence about what are we going to do to prepare ourselves for that. And I think that's metaphorical for just life as a whole. And I think you're making a great example or a great example of that is that, you know, you could very much have anxiety and be stressed about when's the next time, you know, you're going to get news or, you know, any, any little, you know, was I having a hard time breathing there? Or, I mean, mm -hmm. there's a lot of times individuals will have that response to it. Um, and, and I think, you know, when you, when you talked about this idea that, prior to Heather and the kids, you know, work served to give you meaning and, and mm -hmm. purpose in life. And, and, and that I think has, you know, has a huge impact on our, on our lives. If we only focus on, you know, am I going to have a good day or a bad day or, or so, so focused on, how I'm being impacted by something um, or trying to avoid being impacted on something. That's a pretty, that's going to be a pretty anxious life. That's going to be a pretty, mm -hmm. that's going to be a pretty difficult time. But if we attach our, just uh, attach ourselves to something bigger than ourselves, mm -hmm. maybe it's, maybe it's a project or a work, or a, you know, obviously another person or in your case, family, right? These are, these are things that add to, when you don't feel like pushing through, um, they're like, all right, I got to push through for this. So yeah, uh, yeah, no, I get it. So then in 2020, we were talking earlier about this, then in 2020, mm -hmm. um, some, sometime in 2020, then, then there was another thing that started happening and, and that, uh, you had your first bout with cancer. So what, let's mm -hmm. talk a little bit about, uh, about that, about that experience and what has gone on in the last uh, last few years. Yeah, so I think it was uh, June of 2020. I was I was outside doing some yard work, and I, like I had mentioned before, I don't I don't really catch colds. I don't really get upper respiratory stuff, and I felt a little wheeze, kind of in the back of my right lung. And I was just like, you know, it was during COVID and everything was going on. It was kind of nobody knew what COVID really was at that point. And, I was just like, you know, I, I went, I went inside, I took a shower. I'm like, well, maybe I can cough it out. Just trying to see if I had some gunk and it didn't go away. And I was just like, you know, it just felt weird. It was different. So I was just like, I'm pretty in tune to my body. So if something's different. I usually get it checked out immediately. So I was just like, you know what? I'm just going to go to the ER. I'll just go get checked out. Went to the ER. They listened to me. They heard the wheeze. They ended up doing an x-ray and um, they found a, like a two to three centimeter mass and my right lower lobe. And the doctor came in and they're like, well, you know, we think this is probably an infection or some type of fungus. You know, I would give it like six months and then get it checked out again. And I was like, I went back home and kind of talked to my wife and I was like, you know, I don't really feel like waiting six months to see what's going on. So I called them back and pushed for a biopsy and got in the next, got in the next week. And they're like, you know, we'll call you and like, four days with the results. 
well, two days later, they called me and, you know, when the doctor's calling early, it's not usually, not usually good news. And they called me and they're like, Hey, yeah, it came back as cancerous. It actually ended up being synovial sarcoma, which is a very rare soft tissue cancer. Um, so that was kind of, that was my first bout of it. So I went in, had surgery, removed the lower lobe of my lung, took the whole lobe out, you know, it was cancer free for about, uh, eight months. And then I noticed a bump on my scalp, which is an odd place for it to be. But I was like, you know, this is, this is odd. Went to the dermatologist, got it checked out. They sent it to like three different hospitals because they couldn't figure out what it was. Came back as synovial sarcoma again on the scalp, which is extremely rare. They'll usually, usually start somewhere and goes to the lung. So the lung wasn't too rare of a spot, but then for it to pop up on the scalp was extremely rare. So went in, had surgery. About four months later, had something pop up on my left tonsil. And I was just like, you know, I felt it when I was swallowing. It's kind of white in the back. Couldn't figure out what it was. Went to my ENT and I ended up like, okay, because your history is probably probably nothing. I love hearing it's probably nothing. I've heard that a little. <laughs> uh, it's probably nothing. So we'll do a biopsy of it. And lo and behold, it was, you know, another, another round of sarcoma. So they did a tonsillectomy and took that tonsil out. And when they got that tonsil out, they had, they had enough of the tumor that they were able to kind of de- dissect it and, and kind of determine, you know, kind of the root cause of the of the cancer, which ended up being, you know, from the immunosuppressant drugs that I had been on since I was nine to this time, you know, causing that cancer to form in my body. And, you know, I think synovial sarcoma, I don't want to misquote the statistics, but it accounts for like less than 1% of all the soft tissue cancers in the world. So then, you know, I, I went a handful of months, I think three months later, I went in for my normal PET scan and then it was kind of all over. It just, you know, you never wanted to light up like a Christmas tree when you're going for a PET scan. That's what it did. It was in my abdomen, it was in my chest, it was kind of everywhere. So we were still living in Chicago at the time. We're actually in the process of moving back to Tennessee. Um, so, you know, the regiment was to start chemotherapy. So uh went in and uh, did a round of, did, I ended up doing five total rounds, I think, of chemo. And then, you know, as of uh, October of of this past year, I'm a, I'm a year cancer free again. So I've had, you know, synovial sarcoma four times, three times being stage four, which has a five-year survival rate of like 15%. And yet, you know, you know, God willing, I'm, I'm still here and I'll continue to be here a long time. My oncologist down here is very optimistic that I'll continue to be healthy and haven't had any reoccurrences in the last year after the chemo, which is good. But it's interesting that the medicine that I've been taking my whole life to help keep me alive because of the transplant is a contributing factor to this cancer that I got and can't stop the medicine because I needed to protect my heart. So we got to do everything we can, which is just monitoring to make sure the cancer doesn't come back. So it's been a, been a kind of crazy three or four years, especially with my wife and kids. And we were pregnant with our youngest during my first surgery. So it was just like what kind of a whirlwind over the last three years, kind of always thought I was going to be a transplant patient. And now I identify actually more as a cancer patient than I do a, a transplant recipient. Gotcha. You know, I know we, we earlier, you know, in this conversation, we talked about, you know, the, the paradox, right. Uh, of, of, you know, being able to, um, take something, somebody's comment, right, that may have been uh, 
could have could have either been out of his frustration or could have been you know out of, out of his attempt to be motivational or, or whatever it was to a nine-year-old kid playing baseball that ended up hurtful as it was um it led to what then later was life-saving um <laughs> And and it's, and it's bookmarked at that, and and so there's this paradox with that, and then now, you know, this paradox of the same medications that are essential for the transplant to continue to be functional, continue to be working for you, is then the thing that's causing something that could kill you, the the cancer. Mm-hmm. And at least that's what I'm assuming. This is a cancer yep. that could could definitely take your life. Um, yep. And so, um, so yeah. Tell me a little bit about as you're as you and obviously it took a while, right? I mean, now now your doctors are aware that 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 you're living in this paradox, and not just you. Other individuals who are on the same medication have, I would assume, the same uh, same tendency, the same you know, uh, potential of, of, of this. Yeah. Kind of tell us a little bit about that mentally, how to get your head wrapped around that. Yeah. I just had my, I think I mentioned, I had just had my 13 year anniversary for my second transplant and everything went well. My cardio, from a cardiovascular standpoint, I'm as healthy as the day I was transplanted. So it was really good news, but in meeting with my uh, main transplant cardiologist, she actually mentioned that you know, a lot of transplant patients now are succumbing to cancer instead of other things like heart disease and old age. And it's just they don't really have as a community right now real, real answers because they did adjust some of the medicine. So I was on two medicines to lower my immune system. They took me off one. They lowered my dose to the the dose that they could lower it for me. So I'm on like a very low regimen of immunosuppressive medication, which is you know, it's a little can can be a little nerve wracking when you go off medicines because I didn't want to turn into a heart patient again because you kind of passed that and you're still trying to tackle the cancer piece. Um, but I think the the important thing the important thing for me is that I'm very fortunate to still be here and I wouldn't be here because of my transplant and that's the main thing that I focus on. The cancer sucks and it's it's horrible. And I don't wish it on anybody. And um, and I hope that someday there's a cure for it. And I hope someday they come up with different medications for transplants as well that maybe don't be, that aren't as prone to, you know, providing fuel for cancer. But it, I think uh, I think it's all about how you kind of come to the table and approach it too. I've been very fortunate. Surgery for the first three, surgery sucks, but I was able to kind of get it. It wasn't everywhere the chemo worked for me. I got the news I got out of Chicago was, you know, if you got months, not years, moved back down to Nashville. Uh, my oncologist was like, I expect you to live a very long time. So not saying each doctor is right or wrong, but good focused medi- uh, medication to, cure, to treat the cancer, adjustments in the transplant meds, more education around what can we do, I think is, is needed for everybody um, because you you don't want anybody to, to be taking something that's, that's going to, you know, prolong their life and then eventually, you know, cause something that could end it too. Cause it's just, it's a, it's a, di- cancer is a different animal. I mean, I, I it's going to sound weird, but I can deal with cardiovascular stuff all day long. I've been living with it for so long, but the cancer is just, it's brutal. And anybody that's gone through it, you know, I, you know, you don't, you don't realize how strong those people are until they're on the other side of it. Cause it's a grueling, devastating disease for not only 
yourself, but the people around you that see you kind of dealing with it. So I feel like I'm fortunate that I'm on the other side. Hopefully I stay that way. You know, remission is not guaranteed, but I'm going to ride this train as, as long as I can. So I think uh, it's important that continue to take your meds because you need to take them and then continue to have conversations and education and what can the transplant community as a whole do to help prolong uh, recipients' lives with either adjustments to medication or updates in medication. I think that's the, the big piece that the next step that the transplant community needs to take. Sure. Yeah. And I think, you know, you know, that, that element, right. Of, of being grateful for what you have been given and, and continue to be given. And, and then at the same time, be aware and continue to have the conversations. We know that uh, we continue, there's new developments all the time and, and, Mm -hmm. and their new medicines are getting developed all the time. And I imagine in this particular case, there's probably a vested interest in developing medicines that are not causing other problems because that seems to be probably something that, um, uh, pharmaceutical companies don't want to do. Um, so, mm-hmm. so I imagine there's a vested interest in that and, and the scientists to come up and figure something else out. But, you know, I, I appreciate, and I'm glad you're able to share with the listeners about the mindset, right? The, the, your own mental health and your mindset about these circumstances. Cause at the end of the day, that's, that is something that we can influence and control. And, um, mm-hmm. What is, is if there was something that you would want someone, either a family member or, or just an individual in general that they're going through, maybe, maybe not something like being a recipient of a trans, you know, needing a transplant or being a recipient of a transplant or, or being a, a donor or even cancer, but just more, you know, just life. Um, what would be something that you'd want to share, um, that from your own experience? Um, I think the, the biggest thing is you don't realize how important your support group is until you, until you really need it. I'm, I'm very matter of fact when it comes to my health, you know, got the news, you just deal with it. Kind of just go through it and deal with it. I've, I've kind of always been that way, but when you're really, really sick, you need, you need, you need support and to kind of find that early in your journey and identify the people that, that, that can be there for you. Because um, whether it be transplants or cancer or anything, um, there needs everybody needs somebody at some point. You can't do everything on your own, and that that support system is an extension of your strength, and it really helps you. Those people help you get through it, even when they don't feel like that they're helping. You know, they are, and I think that's the important thing. Surround yourself with the people that are going to have positive influence in your outcome because that'll help you continue to kind of want to move forward and push forward and you know not everybody ends up in situations that are positive sometimes it's just negative and that's how it goes but if you have a support system around you you know it takes a little of that burden off of you would have to worry about and deal with everything and that, that can help you heal and and stay healthy and focus on your health and try to get better and I think that's everybody needs that space because if you're if you're trying to deal with everything plus your health, it's just gonna it's almost gonna be too much taxation on your body. Everybody needs a little bit of an avenue to kind of let let go and let other people kind of carry the burden for you for a little bit, and so you can kind of recover and move on. So I found that that's really important, especially having you know wife and kid now as kids as well. So yeah. well, you know, Ryan, I, I I appreciate that, and and I think sometimes we don't 
when, when we have these conversations, sometimes we don't necessarily always give, give, uh, you know, credit to the individuals that are on our team that do all the behind the scenes, uh, support because, mm -hmm. you know, you, you have a, you, you, you just, you were, you were talking about something that reminded me of, of a, a story that I tell a lot about uh, Admiral Stockdale, and uh, he he's he was referenced um, with his experience in uh, Vietnam. Uh, he was a prisoner of war, a uh, uh, prisoner in in Vietnam, and and Jim Collins, who has written many books, uh, Good to Great, and a handful of other books, talked about when he interviewed Stockdale, they came up with this idea called the Stockdale Paradox. And the short version of the Stockdale Paradox is it's two components. Uh, one is he believed wholeheartedly that he was going to be released at some point in the future and he was going to survive uh, the camp and go back home. At the same time, he had that unwavering faith that he was going to be okay, um, didn't know what okay was going to look like, but he believed he was going to be okay. At the same time, he had to deal with the brutal facts that he was in the camp right now, being tortured, being starved, whatever it might have been. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of kind of what you're kind of, what, how you've done life, that I'm going to be okay. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to get on the other side of the, the, either the transplant or the heart procedure or, or the cancer, but I got to take care of it. I just got to, I got to mm -hmm. go to my appointment. I got to hit, take on, take it on, you know, head on. And then because you have that mindset and you probably have told your team, that's the mindset that you have that mm -hmm. on those days when you've been down, they've reminded you, yep, this sucks, but you're going to get through this. You know, yeah, I think I kind of need I need that mindset for myself. Like, I don't feel like I could operate um, with my health history if I didn't kind of think like that. I always think I'm going to be I always think I'm going to beat it. I always think that I'm going to get through it. But I also know that I'm, I might not. But I'm also not afraid of that either. And so I've, I've kind of been at peace with the fact that, you know, um, that there is a point that I might not be here, but I'm also never not really focused on it. I just know that it's there, but I also believe that anything that comes my way, I'm going to beat it because so far, fortunately I have. So until I come up to something that I can't, you know, defeat or overcome, I'm going to continue to have that mentality. And, you know, I think that that kind of helps me just kind of get through the day, just get it, tackle it, move on. Sure. Yeah. Got something else on the schedule for later in the day. You got to keep, got to keep going. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. So Brian, I, you know, appreciate you being so open about sharing your journey. And then obviously since the last time we talked, this has been a different, different part of your journey. And I'm, I'm grateful to hear that it's been over a year since you've had any uh, issues with cancer and hopefully working with your medical team that you'll be able to keep that at bay and help have your body healthy fight off those cells that are uh, un, un, undesirable, unwanted. And so uh, as we wrap up, is there anything that you'd, uh, la any last things that you want to share with the audience? No, I just uh, appreciate, you know, dialogue around this topic, I think is extremely important, not only organ donation and, and transplants, but I think the advancement that that's needed for medicine for the transplant patients. But I, I think also, just because you're given a 
given a something by the doctor. I'm not saying all doctors are right or wrong, but just because you're given an outcome doesn't mean that it, it is definite. You know, there there's ways, there's certain circumstances where you're going to be able to overcome it, certain circumstances where you're not. But I think, you know, from what's helped me get through everything is just trying to push forward and just trying to get through the day. Um, and it's like I mentioned earlier, you're only as strong as the support system you have around you. So try if you're able to kind of build that up so they can build you up in the times that you're not, you're not as strong as you need to be. Perfect. Well, Brian, again, I appreciate uh, you being with us and uh, look forward to uh, another conversation here in the near future. And 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 then when you're more than you know, a couple couple years cancer free and and cardiovascular healthy, we'll we'll have you back on and share more about your story because those kids will be having you run. So you got to be you got to be in shape <laughs> to keep up with them. <laughs> yeah, you got to keep up with them now too. So exactly. <laughs> so. Um, just uh, as Brian shared, you know, and obviously some of the things that Brian shared about his own health history and experience may may appear to be extreme. And 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 part of the reason why I wanted Brian to come on is to share um, about the paradox of that sometimes we find ourselves in a situation where um, the thing that is essential for our our health or our well being may also then in itself lead to um, other other aspects of problems. And then that, that, how do we, how do we live within that paradox? And so, um, as you contemplate about Brian's story and the things that he shared, um, definitely take into account the importance of, of sharing those feelings and sharing your attitude about being able to overcome those things and being able to prevail, but also the essential importance of having something, uh, a purpose and a meaning that you, you'll put your energy toward, as well as developing a team around you that has your back and will have your support. As always, I appreciate you being here and look forward to being with you next week.